Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. You can already see I'm out of practice, Brandon, because we haven't done a pod in like a month. It's been a long time, yeah, before the Christmas holiday. As we've said oftentimes on the podcast, that life is the enemy of the amateur podcast. Life gets in the way of our weekly schedule all the time. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> we just we just need to find someone who could just pay us for this, and this will be our, our entire life. I, I totally be down for that. Could I'm, you do a podcast every day? You know, the podcast at our daily, it's interesting because I listen to several. I've wondered about that because it is, I mean, it's such a time commitment and also a uh, burden in terms yeah. of being prepared, right, and having – commentary and topics to discuss on a daily basis. I mean, we always have plenty to discuss on a weekly basis, but I think that becomes a little bit more challenging You'd on a daily basis. A and yeah, and making sure you're not replicating something you've already talked about the day before and trying to go for something totally different. It is challenging. Okay, so take take me as your podcast partner out of the mix. Could would you do if you had to do one daily, would you do it with somebody or would you do it solo? Uh, I would probably definitely still do it with somebody. I, I just I would have greater confidence doing uh, having a partner and, and being able to bounce things off and you know and and keep someone keep me you know sharp in terms of ensuring we're I, discussing I agree relevant with that, topics. But most daily ones are just an individual because they're more rant based. It's oh, mostly like this person ranting on this topic. They're not so much. The in, exception with that is if you have like a daily guest or if you have yeah. someone coming on who's a. Charlie Sykes is a good example. Because yeah, he's, he's constantly interviewing somebody, somebody new. Yeah. Where Ben Shapiro or Jimmy Dore is the opposite of that, where it's one person and it's more of a, it's much more their personality driving something. Right. It's more of, yeah, a, you know, just a, it's, it's less of like a conversation than a, um, I don't know what I'm trying to go for, but yeah, like you said, ran is probably it, the it's best more, word. It's more of a conversation more than a presentation of this personality's opinion, right? which a lot of those, those one-person podcasts just kind of dive into. Have you, have you taken any kind of dive through some of the conservative podcasts, some of the new age conservative podcasts, like your Dan Bonginos, your Buck Sexted's, your folks like that? Not, no, not, not anybody on the far right. I mean, I'm familiar okay. with all of them and I've heard clips and, but I've not listened intently, you know, from beginning to end, um, any of those. I've tried a few times. I've turned on Steve Bannon's war room podcast a couple times. I just can't, I, I can get about uh, 10 minutes into see, it. I don't know I that I have the bail. mental wherewithal to, to yeah. do that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. What, what's his name? Um, uh, Tim who's on, I'm forgetting his last name. Tim pool. No, no the one who's, who's Tim part Dillon. of the bulwark who, he oh. he did a write up where yeah. he listened to Steve Bannon's podcast yes. for several weeks, yeah. like nonstop. Like Damn a, it, Tim! Yeah, he's got long hair, younger guy. Uh, yes, yeah, Damn he it, was he was a Romney guy, and he's yeah. worked in yeah. worked. He's a, a good listen. Yeah, uh, he is, and I, he he also has a not my party. Yeah. Um, TikTok and Instagram. Tim Miller. Tim Miller. Tim yes, Miller. thank you. Tim there Miller. We go. Easy last name too. I don't yeah. know why. How did we not get Miller? <laughs> so Biden has passed his one year in office. And I know like a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a lot made of this with people giving out grades and talking about where the Biden administration was compared to what expectations were when he entered office. Yeah. Just give me your general impressions about Biden's first year. Is it meeting your expectations? Are we where we thought we were? Are you getting out of this what you thought you were getting out of it with a vote for Biden? Well, I will 
preface my remarks by saying I do still do not regret my vote, and I am glad we have Biden over Trump for yeah. a multitude of reasons, let alone you know just commitment to democracy, not having the constant chaos that emanated from the White House on a daily basis. Let me ask you this. Did you vote for but, Biden or did you vote against Trump? Uh, well, in, in terms of my um, philosophy. You yeah, know, when, I went, when you were casting your vote, were you voting because you liked what Biden was bringing to the table, or was that more of a vote against, well, hey, we can't let this dude stay in office? You know, I wasn't a, a huge Biden fan, but I did overall, I was voting for him as well as against Trump. It was a mix yeah. because I, I did like how he projected himself being a return to normalcy. Yep, so you know, he had the, the centrist mindset. Um, all of that appealed to me, you know, as, as somebody who could, I was under no illusions that the country could be united after the last four years, but we could at least stop, start to breathe more slowly and, and yeah. just kind of take this collective like pause. So yes. So I did vote more for Biden than just against Trump. And yeah, I think his prospects started out very well. I mean, he had high approvals, the inauguration went well, the robust agenda, and then, of course, where things fell apart was really when the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Uh, and then he really hasn't had a um, good accomplishment or break since then, with the exception of uh, the uh, transportation um, uh, plan, yeah, the infrastructure, the infrastructure bill. bill. Yeah. But, but, but besides that, it's been bad, one piece of bad news after the other. Um, you have the um, economic issues. You have the highest inflation in 40 years, which isn't something he's been able to, to really clamp down on. And you have the, the gridlock with the, the Senate. And so as far as any other legislation, it's pretty much dead on arrival. And I think that there's an uh, instance of just – uh, communication with this White House too. Yeah. They they don't communicate well. Um, they they haven't. Uh, Biden personally has issues with that. I think due to his age when he does give press conferences. Yeah. Uh, but but also the White House itself in terms of the comms team and the the strategic team, they just seem slow to respond. Um, I would say particularly like on the pandemic. I, for a while now we've discussed that we needed to have this approach to communicating to the public that we're moving to an endemic stage yeah. where the pandemic is going to be the, – the virus is going to be with us, but we have the tools now to fight it. And so we start to, you know, I, I think remove, you know, the restraints that we've had uh, on ourselves for the past two years and just, you know, continue under the banner of, you know, take precautions, get vaccinated – but let's start to move back to normal. Uh, and they haven't really had messaging for that. And the CDC has been a mess and has been criticized yes. from both ends for their just, I, I think, almost schizophrenic uh, yeah. messaging. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be desired, obviously, still. And, you know, and the White House, the polls reflect that. I mean, Biden is stuck in the, the 30s. So he's pretty much where Trump was at the pretty end much. of his term. Yeah. <laughs> the good news is... He can still regain uh, that confidence, but uh, yeah, I mean, there there just hasn't there hasn't been any change or shift in approach, and so the, they appear to be in this malaise would be the best way to describe it. I, I think one of the criticisms that's fair to level at Biden is that he has just misread the moment. He the rumor is or the story goes that John Meacham, the presidential historian, who's also a speechwriter for Biden during his campaign, got in his ear and they they came up with this FDR style um, agenda and that yeah, Meacham transformative kind president. of convinced him yeah. that he was living in this FDR moment. 
And what the public really wanted was this radical transformational change coming out of the pandemic, not just this kind of, let's just settle back into being normal. And I think most people who voted for Biden were voting for some normalcy. Yeah. Just bring, like you said, bring the temperature down. Let's breathe a little bit easier. If we can avoid picking a fight, let, let's avoid one for, for, for a while. Let's just kind of settle down a little bit and let's kind of see where the dust settles after the pandemic. There's going to be a whole bunch of unintended consequences that come out of this, this pandemic socially, economically, politically. Let's all just take a breath, yeah. let the dust settle a little bit and see what happens. And I think the way he has handled the messaging around the pandemic, the way he's handled the economy, the way he has just absolutely ignored certain things like inflation and the southern border. I get it, Democrats. You don't want to wade into the border crisis or what's happening at the border. You can't just take that issue off the table because you politically don't want to deal with it. And the biggest thing that Biden's lost is this, this image of him as this empathetic figure. And I think the the leaving of how we withdrew from Afghanistan, that's what really fractured that image of Biden as this kind of grandfatherly, empathetic figure whose main strength really is the tragedy that he's had to deal with in his life and how he's dealt with that and the perspective that it's given him. Once those images of Afghanistan hit in the summer, that was gone. And I don't think Biden's ever really found his footing since then. No, and I think that, empathetic connection, there hasn't been a moment that the White House has seized to uh, to make that connection and to recover from the losses earlier in the summer. And if you're going to channel FDR, FDR was great at that fireside chat, right? Yeah. The yep. radio chats, you know, and that is something I would think that Biden's, you know, comms teams would look at replicating in some type of modern tech format and they haven't even biden being old-fashioned and silly and grandpa-ish with an old-time fireside chant even that would fit his brand and his image that would be on brand what's gotten me is brandon have you noticed how mean biden's gotten in the last couple of months everything is snippy he has a snotty comment for everybody he gets very angry if anybody pushes back on him in any way I think what we're really seeing is part of Joe Biden's temperament when things don't go exactly the way he wants them to go. Yeah. I don't think it's a national tragedy that he called a Fox reporter an SOB. <laughs> Presidents have been doing that forever. Peter but, Ducey. Yeah. But it just simply shows his where his state of mind is about how to communicate with the media or other groups of people. Well, it shows that he's impulsive and that he— you know, it lacks patience. And so it, it plays, unfortunately, into a broader character um, personality trait, uh, which his political opponents have seized on and will continue yeah. to hammer. So, I mean, again, I, I think, and, and the problem too for him is it takes a conversation off any and all issues that he wants to address or potential legislation because then it becomes on his tone and demeanor. So it's something he needs to to get a handle on. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, to some extent, I understand the frustration. I mean, he has, uh, you know, this uh, gridlock in the Senate with two members, you know, that won't pass much of his marquee legislation. So you have Build Back Better, which is dead on arrival. You have an impasse on voting rights. But at the same time, I 
feel like there's been a uh, missed opportunity, particularly with Biden's White House and reaching out to, you know, a handful of these Republicans and saying, hey, what could you get on board yeah. with? We've run into this brick wall with Mansion and Cinema on the filibuster, but, you know, would you potentially be for a filibuster carve-out that would be limited, and, and what would it take to get you there? Like, there were no talks with people like Romney and there or was, And there was never a recognition that others. Mansion and Cinema were never going to move. Yeah. Which I think all of us could see you're not going to move Manchin off the spot he's on. Right. And I would have taken the political tack. Joe Manchin gives us a Senate seat. As Democrats, we have absolutely no business holding. Trump won West Virginia by by 39 points. So we can't make this pushing him in a direction that is just going to basically lose us that Senate seat. And I think this is where your point's valid. If, if you can't get your 50% of your own party to vote for what you want, then you got to find something that you can have other people vote for. And maybe if you, if you propose a bill that every single Republican won't vote for, isn't that, isn't that kind of a, a red flag to maybe you need to craft your legislation a little bit different to reach a little bit of a bigger audience. Right. And Biden's done to me. That's what bipartisanship is. That's what centering. That's what centership is. That's what I thought he was going to bring to the table. He's done none of that. Well, and I'm under no illusions he's going to get the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's, and he's not going to even get but you don't half need of the Republican caucus. But you don't need them. You just need a handful. And again, on something like a filibuster carve-out, if you went to somebody like a, a Romney or you know one of those core group of senators, or even a few of the ones that are retiring, like Toomey in Pennsylvania, yeah. and say, hey— you know, this is what we're trying to do. What can we do to get here? And but there's been no attempt to do that. That wasn't even tried. It was just the singular focus on mansion and cinema with no change in behavior. And they just kept on and on and on and nothing changed. Yeah. Why did it they try this? And a good example is you now have this working group of Republicans and Democrats that are trying to shore up the Electoral College uh, Count Act to prevent um, a scenario like what we almost saw occur where, you know, you would have states just um, – you would have uh, the vice president choose not to yeah. certify the results. This is this, yeah, the so, state of electors. Yeah, so the they're trying president. to beef that up so there's not a chance of that happening when the result is clear that it really is a formality and there can be no action taken to circumvent the will of the people at that point when Congress really just has, you know, a, uh, a ceremonial role and certifying the results. So it's great to see that, but if you had an engagement White House, A, they would have known <laughs> that there was that working group putting together this legislation to, to secure, um, you know, future for federal elections. And they would have reached out to him and said, hey, what could we also add on to this to shore yeah. up elections? You know, we have, you know, other election um, issues, uh, security issues that need to be examined based on what we saw in the 2020 race. Uh, what can we do to, you know, solidify um, ensure against attempts by state legislatures to submit their own electors that are completely at odds with their yeah. state results. Things like that that they can introduce. And this has been the criticism of uh, the Voting Rights Act, too, because so much of it is focused just on, you know, ballot boxes yeah. and access, which is important. But what's more important is ensuring that you don't have legislatures that are completely sidelining secretaries of state and saying, we're going to submit our own electors regardless of the result. That's what's scary. And that's what we need to focus on. And, and that would be a good supplement to the Electoral College Act legislation. 
legislation they, if they you had an engaged White take House. The win. That's what I don't get. Take the win. Take yeah. the victory. And like you said, hey, if I pass this thing that Republicans can vote for in the Electoral College Act, I'm also going to try to throw a few things on there. But take the easy victory where you can get right. it. A couple of weeks ago, Biden is in Georgia, and he kicks off, I guess, the push to get the voter uh, reform. This is the John Lewis and the Voting, Ford, rights, the, Act. The voting yeah. rights Act getting that passed. And he gives a speech in Georgia that— if I were a Democratic senator running for re-election, I would give a speech after the president and say, I just wanted to let the American people know I'm done with the president of the United States. I will not participate in this agenda anymore because I am not going to sit here and stand behind a leader of my party that uses Bull Connor and the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis to describe 50% of my fellow Americans. And that's what Joe Biden did. That speech was a disaster. Who wrote that? Who came up with that? What in the world was he trying to do? The tone of that speech. Having Joe Biden bark from a microphone in at a crowd that the bill that was passed in Georgia is Jim Crow 2.0, and you have to decide if you're going to be on the, bull, on the side of Bull Connor and support that legislation is historically ignorant, ignorant and just political malpractice. I don't know what he was doing, and I think he lost another big section of his party that day. Well, uh, and I, I, I don't know that he lost a bigger section of his party. I might dispute that because I think in terms of where the party's at in that, I don't know that that changes anything. Now, independents and unaffiliated and, of course, any moderate Republicans he would need would be completely turned off by that. And I think at some point his staff realized that he needed to be more aggressive, and there's been this long-standing criticism that he had it taken up that legislation um, in the way that he had Build Back Better uh, and uh, the infrastructure bill, and that you know that had really been much lower in priority, and so there was a lot of criticism of that, and that he was not forceful enough on that, and you know, and 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 so that criticism came, and so he. Became aggressive, but he so went completely it, to the he extreme. Gives a terrible speech, right? And he went completely to the extreme and and made comparisons that were way off and were just. Do you think Joe Biden actually believes what he said in that speech? Do you think he really, truly believes that if you don't support that legislation, or let, let's work it this way, if you support the bill that Georgia passed, do you really think? He thinks that's comparable to the Confederacy and Bull Connor and Jim Crow. I, I don't think so. Or is he so. just reading lines? He's just I mean, reading I think lines. he's just reading lines. And yeah. I don't know. And that's my real problem. Well, and I don't know the intended audience for that speech. That's another great unless one. It Who was, is that for? Unless it was just for the, the progressive left um, as, you know, basically throwing them, um, you know, I think scraps. Because otherwise, in terms of moving the needle, in terms of getting the senators on board, he needed it did nothing. And it did the yeah. opposite effect, actually. Mitt Romney, your greatest Republican ally, came right. out and just blasted that speech. And basically, basically said, I'm not Bull Connor. And you have no right to use that. Historically, that's ignorant. And that whole speech was, again, who for and to accomplish what? I, I just don't know what Biden's doing. And I'm getting the impression that he's reading a lot of lines handed to him. I don't really know if I know what Biden's underlying ideology is anymore or what his North Star is of what he's trying to accomplish. 
because that speech accomplished nothing and just poisoned the, the possibility of getting anything done on voting rights. Yeah. Again, which who was that for? Right. I mean, and yeah, there's a much better way to, to handle that. And and again, I think there's there was even, I do agree that it was necessary to call out the 12 to 13 Republicans who had supported Voting Rights Act in the past yeah. and had voted affirmatively, people like Mitch McConnell, who even But this is way more than book. voting rights. But that act right. also completely redoes campaign financing. It's a massive bill that changes the fundamentals of how we do an election. It has no business being passed on a partisan Right. I mean thing. there it's it is massive and there's many moving parts to it. And and I think again, there's a way forward if that would be broken down into separate parts and you could find uh, commonality and common cause which could be had. But again, it gets back to a lot, just like the Build Back Better plan. It's a kind of grab bag of yeah. everything, and so it becomes dead on arrival. Then we move to this four-hour or whatever press conference he, he gave. It wasn't four hours, but it was long. And again, the thing that I took away from that— The one is, where he answered questions from like every single yes, reporter? Yeah. His tone, his posture, just—you know, there were, there were times in that press conference— that he looked a lot like Donald Trump and sounded a lot like Donald Trump. Okay, we're going to role play. You're the president of the United States. I'm a reporter. Hey, Mr. President, what do you think about your your poll number sucking? Am I supposed to be Biden? Yes, now oh, you're okay. Biden. What, what's the standard poli- – I, I didn't set this role play up very well, did I? <laughs> Sorry. What, what's the standard politician answer to that? I oh, mean, you could come up with something. Oh, off yeah, your head. you could. You, yeah. you, you, know, you could say, well, you know, polls are a snapshot in time. We're not focused on the polls. There, We're there looking you at you know the big picture at, and trying to move the American economy forward. Instead, he channels Trump. I don't believe in polls, and talks about five videos for another five minutes about how polls are wrong and how he doesn't believe that's what the American people think. Right, which is ridiculous because, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that polls serve a purpose, and so again. But yeah, I, that was his his tone, and it's it's an antagonistic, aggressive posture that he's taken. And maybe this is just because we haven't seen this in a really long time. Biden is a completely undisciplined politician. Oh, yeah. And there's a great scene in the movie W where Josh Brolin, who's playing George W. Bush, and I forget the actor who plays um, Rove, they're prepping him for a presidential debate. And Rove just keeps asking him questions, and W just keeps repeating the exact same answer all the time. And it's prep exercise for when you hear this, this is your two, three-sentence standard answer, and then you pivot back to your talking points. This is political presentation 101. 101. I guess it's because it's been five years since we've had an effective politician as president— I guess we've forgotten what that looks like. Yeah. But when I see Biden at that press conference, I just saw a confused, angry old man most of the time. And I just, I just, again, who was that press conference for? What was he trying to accomplish? And then this is where he has the Russia can do a minor incursion in the Ukraine. Uh, that and line, yeah. everybody loses their mind because once again, the standard answer, we stand with NATO. Any boots on the ground from Russia to Ukraine constitutes an invasion. We will not tolerate that. These are simple, easy things to navigate that Biden, Trump, and the presidency of the United States just doesn't seem to be able to navigate anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's a blunder because— 
you know, I think after the just constant faux pas during the Trump years and the are just scattered and scatterbrained foreign policy, people are looking for resoluteness yeah. and for uh, for clarity. And Biden didn't provide that. And, and again, it was another opportunity where he's supposed to contrast himself with Trump on foreign policy, and he's unable to hmm. do so with these types of mistakes. Uh, and again, it all started with Afghanistan. But on the foreign policy front, he hasn't had any major victories to claim either. Can you ever remember even a network covering an Obama press conference? There there, there was no need to. No. Because he was just going to give you the standard political answer. There were no surprises. There was no gaps. His cadence, his presentation, nothing. It was a professional display. And I think we've just just lost that expectation of the presidency the last couple of times we've been through it we, we really have and again the common denominator is that you had you know somebody who was at you know over the age of 75 <laughs> and we haven't had a president who hasn't been the 70s now for many years so somebody approaching 80 should run nothing nothing they should be done is there anything biden can do so the his the next um the next milestone, I think, that the American people weigh in on what they think of Biden is the midterms. And we all expect them to be just a bloodbath for Democrats, as historically they, all, they always are. What can Biden do? If you're his senior advisor, what are you telling him needs to happen now well, to be- save his presidency? Before that, I think his next opportunity to lay out a vision for his next term will be the State of the Union address, which is going to be late this year. I think it's March 1st or okay. something, March 1st. I see they, they put the schedule out for that. So I think it's the latest it's been in several decades. But that's going to be his next opportunity to do a change in tone and to not to move away from this aggressive posture and to focus on building bridges, but also on uh, what he wants to accomplish. And so that, I think, will set the tone for the rest of the, the term and especially for Congress prior to the midterms. So number one, I hope he has good speech writers who are really being diligent about what's said and how yeah. it's said during that. And then, you know, I think in terms of the rest of his uh, – and, and unfortunately, I mean, campaign season starts pretty yeah, quickly. that's the big thing. And that's going to suck out a lot of oxygen yeah. from everything else. Um, so I, I don't know, um, you know, other than – Obviously, the response in terms of how Ukraine is handled, and we'll get into that and where that goes. There's a couple of foreign policy areas um, on the the economic front. The economy, um, you know, is going to be crucial, and his uh, impact there is going to be limited. But being able to speak to what Americans are going through, the the just out of control inflation, how that's impacting. Yeah. daily life and the supply chain issues, which are still unresolved. I mean, there, he's got to be able to speak to those in a way that exudes empathy and understanding and that it's a priority at the forefront for his administration and his economists and people around him. And so far, it hasn't seemed that way. It seems like that's been secondary. So he's got to be able to speak to that. And then obviously where our economy is um, over the next several months is going to have uh, significant, if not the greatest impact on what happens? President Pivot 101 is fire your complete staff. That was the, that's my first suggestion to buy. Oh, so you think they should all fire be fired? Absolutely everybody. Ron Klain, I don't know what he does except tweet stupid shit all day. I don't think he's been a fairly effective chief of staff. No. I've been Anthony Bilkin. I don't, I mean, as from DO, Merrick Garland, all, all the way down. I would start by sweeping out your cabinet and restarting. 
Um, I would get rid of Jin Saki. Jin Saki is good at her job, but she just has this condescending tone that just doesn't come off very well. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I do think part of that's built in if you're a press secretary. If you look at the last <laughs> several that we've we've had, I yeah. mean, for many presidents, I mean, that's just... Then I invite the, the head of the CDC for a drink at the White House and say, you have 60 days to get your messaging shit together, or you and your entire staff are gone. Well, and I think that's the one, um, Michelle Walensky, the CDC head, yes. has been the most detrimental in many ways. Yep. And then I'd call Dr. Fauci in and say, we're going to throw you the greatest retirement party you've ever seen. But you've reached a point where you're such a polarizing figure. And I agree with Hugh Hewitt and the conservatives on this. You're doing more harm than good. And we're out of the phase of the pandemic where we really need scientific, um, a scientific mouthpiece on this. So we're going to transition you out and somebody else in. That just has pure political moves behind it, but it's one I would definitely make. But who, I mean, are you saying you'd replace him with somebody who was... Bring in somebody brand new that nobody's ever heard of that has no baggage with him at all to start handling this from a clean slate moving forward. Okay, but I would argue that whoever's in that role is always going to be a lightning rod. I mean, for all the way down to what even happens on the local level with school districts and masking. That's one of those jobs. Hey, you may have an 18-month shelf life here because you're going to have to say things that the American people aren't going to like and do things the American people aren't going to want to do. That's just part of the job. And the shitty part of it is in two years, you're going to make so many enemies in Congress and in public and in politics that you're going to be run out of the job. But that's just the way the job is during this pandemic. And then the final thing is I would tell Kamala Harris, you are never to be seen again. You are, let's take the most insignificant vice president in the history of the United States. And I want half of that from you. We need to bury you in a hole deep, deep, deep. Because every time you say something, you say it wrong you say it oddly, and you just create problems. And you're never going to be president in 2024. That's never going to happen. So I wouldn't kick her off out of the position, but I would greatly, greatly diminish her role. And from a comms perspective, she doesn't see the light of day much because she's just a drag at this point in time. And Biden doesn't. He can do that all by himself. He doesn't need a second person trying to drag him down. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I mean, agree with that. I, and I don't see propensity for her to be able to change at this point. No. I don't know that that's possible. Although, I mean, again, if he sidelines her completely, he's going to face wrath from what su- vice sets of, subsets of his own party. And but the what vice left. president has ever not been sidelined? Yeah. So... It was wrong to pick her. Except was, perhaps Cheney was probably the exception that's there. That's probably true. Yeah. She was the wrong pick, and the job she is, she's trying to play, yeah. she's wrong for. We just need to recognize that and move on. We can we can transition to our next topic with Kamala Harris. How do you like her on the Supreme Court, Brandon? <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> I, it's interesting that that rumor is going around, and it shows just the desire by so many to have her out of the vice presidency. So I, that's not an, so. an issue in 2024. But but again, yeah, it's just that's it's a pipe dream. Not going to happen. No, there there is no way. So Bayer decides he's retiring. The story is that he was going to retire this year, but he wanted to wait a little bit longer to make the announcement. And the White House kind of jumped the gun and just made the announcement now. And I think today, didn't him and Biden, they, they did a joint kind of press conference together. They did. I didn't get to see that. But yeah, I, I, I saw I saw Byer was waving around a, a copy of the Constitution, I think, which is typical for Supreme Court justices, maybe when they retire. But th- this was going to happen. 
is the timing of this, does it help the Democrats for the midterm? Or is it by the time Biden's going to pick his nominee in the next two weeks, the confirmation process should be fairly, fairly quickly by the end of March, this is done. Does this have any impact or is this just water under the bridge by the time we hit the midterms? Well, I, I think, it, I mean, it depends, uh, again, if it's an extended process or not. If it's not, if it's a fairly smooth process, I think it's a victory, however minor, it's still a victory for Biden. Sure. It allows him to leave his imprint on the court. And, you know, it is an energizing factor for part of his base who are really thinking about Supreme Court justices now with Roe v. Wade on the line and some of these yeah. other big decisions that are coming down the pike with the court. So I, I think even months later, it, it can have an impact in terms of being a rallying cry on the campaign trail. Um, but, you know, so it's... It, but again, that's mitigated somewhat based on how far out it is. I, it, the thing is, it's not going to hurt him. Um, if anything, it can help him marginally. So, yeah, I mean, it's and it's interesting to me. I think a lot will be said. And again, he's going to play to his base in the appointment as well because he's already committed to appointing a black justice, yeah. an African American woman, uh, first African American woman. So that helps shore up support. That? Do you have a problem that he just came out and said? If you're not a black female, don't apply. Well, somewhat. Although, I mean, you know, when Reagan appointed the first woman, he also made that promise yeah. too, you know, and broadcasted that out. So, you know, I, I do, I do think it. Unfortunately, it places more emphasis on, you know, identity politics and on yeah. the experience and the the tone and temperament and the judicial philosophy. Um, but at the same time, it's just kind of par for the course yeah. now. I I would hope that based on whoever is chosen, that the conversation then moves more quickly to temperament and to philosophy and and yeah. that approach and outlook that that a person has on the law. I, it's just I'm with you. I I don't mind coming out and saying I'm looking for specifically a black woman to join the court. It's time. The court has to represent what America looks like. I'm, I'm all, I'm all down with that. Yeah. It just, it gives a little bit of, of ammunition to your political enemies to come at you with, you know, Hey, you're, 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 you've narrowed the focus so much to this one, one constituent group and you're doing it for political reasons. Right. I don't think anybody could deny that Biden is picking an African-American woman because African-Americans are a core constituent. He's got to carry, or whoever's running for president as a Democrat's got they to are and I and it's cynical and it's totally political, but you know it does help him shore up support among the African American base, which is unhappy right now with uh, voting rights faltering, yep. and they feel like Biden elevated voting rights so far late in his you know first year or two, which they're not happy with. Well, that voting. <laughs> I've had multiple people text me about, I can't believe this voting rights bill isn't going to go through and this is terrible and this is the end of the democracy. And when you ask them, what did Georgia do? What, you know, what, so if you ask them first, why is it so important that we, we pass this law? Everybody says, well, look what Georgia did. Well, what did Georgia really do? Mostly what they did was take away the drop boxes and the, the unmanned locations that people could drop their ballots into. They also limited that the state can't just send people ballots. There's still 16 days of early voting in Georgia. Still got to show an ID like you did before. It, it, my, my point is, this is a completely oversized reaction 
to what that legislation in Georgia was. And the voting rights bill that Biden's trying to trying to pass is a complete federalization of of presidential elect. We can't. It's insane that they're trying to push that through, and it's insane that we're linking the passage of that or the constitutionality of that of who you might pick for the next Supreme Court justice. I just, to me, the Supreme Court has actually performed pretty good the last couple of years. How how politically are we going to get with this? And Trump kind of started it, but is Biden going to escalate it? Well, and I mean, I, I think, I mean, the court now, I think because it is going to be seen as a political animal. I mean, there's no way around it. I, mean, I think yeah. the cases they're taking and the expected rulings, um, I mean, they're taking up affirmative action, race-based yeah. emissions again. Yep. So a lot of these culture issues that we thought were settled um, or at least settled in terms of the court's uh, view on it are not. They're coming back to the court. So, yes, they've been bandied about in political arena and on Capitol Hill and in state houses around the country. But now the court has taken them up again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it is an issue there. I do think with the Voting Rights Act, there are elements based on what happened in 2020 that need to be tackled, uh, you know, in terms of uh, and I'm more of the viewpoint. I don't like, you know, rolling back um, access and extension mm-hmm. to the ballot, uh, extending access um, and saying we're going to go back and limit now and we're going to um, make it illegal to send out advanced ballot requests, you know, yeah. to, to people. Um, but again, that kind of takes a secondary priority uh, for me, at least, to what the legislatures are doing around the country to circumvent the process and with secretaries of state. And I feel like that is an area where we should have some federal legislation to say, you know, we know that elections are state run, but, you know, we can't have a scenario where we have um, an, an ele- a political body choosing to completely um, disregard, uh, you know, the, the yeah. vote of their um, elect the residents. I mean, that's just their voters. It's just not because that, that creates chaos. So I, I, again, there's things that can be tackled. And and I think as we've talked about before, the voting rights act, um, uh, it contains a lot of different minutia that doesn't need to be in there. You start by breaking it down and then you go and look at these one by one and see what you can put together. I guess where I'm trying to tie this back to the picking of the next Supreme Court justice is any big thing like that is going to end up at the Supreme Court. Yeah. Eventually, they're going to have to decide it, like they did the OSHA mandate thing for vaccines when they shot that down, which I think is the right decision. I guess what, what I'm trying to link back to is, wouldn't you? are we looking to pick a judge that doesn't mind recreating the election system at the federal level or allowing that to stand, or are we looking for somebody who takes a more stricter constitutional approach to that to saying that's a legislative process. If you want to pass a law federalizing elections, go be, go right ahead, but don't look for the court to do that. I guess what, what I'm trying to piece through is this next person that Biden is going to put on the Supreme court. My guess is going to be, a, a progressive in nature and who is going to take a much more activist position to that Supreme court seat. And I just don't know if that's where we're, if that's where we want the court to go. 
Right. Well, well, I agree, but I think that's um, that's just the political nature. I mean, that's demanded by the base now. Um, you know, we've gone through, I think, on both sides to this point where, you know, you have the base that is choosing the uh, list of potential nominees and then, you know, handing those off to the president and then the president picks from that. I mean, that's literally what Trump did. I mean, yeah. he was given a list from the Federalist Society yeah. and said, these <laughs> are the people that are acceptable. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And that wasn't the way it was done years ago, but we're so far removed from that. I mean, and then so that that's the problem. That's why years ago you could get 96 to three votes or yeah. 92 to seven votes um, on a conservative or liberal justice, you know, either one. And that's just not going to be the case ever again. I don't want the Supreme Court expanded. I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, I want, I think the Supreme Court has been pretty functional the way it is right now. and It's probably the last institution in America that still has uh, enjoys some respect among the American public yeah. and authority where, I mean, that has just completely fallen by the wayside with all other levels of government. And to me, the fact that nobody really gets everything they want out of the Supreme Court is a good well, sign that it's functioning as intended. And the OSHA case was a good example, right? Because they did, they um, struck down the requirement, vaccine requirement for um, the businesses, but they left it in place for healthcare mm-hmm. providers. Yeah. So um, it was a mixed bag is what we ended up getting out but of that. I guess why that scares me is that instead of Congress, who is elected by the people and accountable to the people, passing a law around vaccination and mandate at the federal level, Biden wrote an executive order, and then the court, it was up to the court to decide if it went forward or not. I, I like that the Supreme Court sometimes takes the stands. That's a law, guys. You, you, you've got your process mixed up. You keep missing this step where you expect us to do something when really this should be coming out of the legislation. Well, and it feels like this pick is going to be yet another pick that's comfortable with just bring those issues to us and we'll solve them at the Supreme court, which I don't think that's the way this should go. Well, no, but again, both parties have become reliant on that. I mean, they immediately, you know, every, um, decision is challenged. It's appealed to the court by each side. So we have made the Supreme court, the de facto arbiter of, um, all of these cases and, and legislation more generally. And so, and again, that goes back to what we've talked about before about Congress abdicating their role to the Supreme Court. I mean, that's what they've essentially done. I mean, really, if I'm a senator, my job is to, depending on who the president is, bitterly complain or support any executive order that person puts forward. And then when it gets to the Supreme Court, bitterly complain or support that they did the right thing when they decide if it's legal or not. And that's really all I do. I mean, I'm not there to write any legislation. I'm not there to yeah. pass anything. I'm just there to let the state that I represent know, should we be mad or should we be happy about what the president and the court just did? And that just doesn't seem like a sustainable model. And I don't think Biden is looking for judges that are going to break that current cycle. No. I, and again, I think that it's become uh, politically polarizing because – you know, he's looking for judges that fit a certain uh, political mold. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to now. Does this confirmation go quick or is this a long drawn out battle? I I think it'll be quicker than people realize or expected. I mean, particularly if 
Um, you know, he nominates somebody who obviously doesn't have any, you know, major controversy yeah. that would result in extended hearings. If it's somebody who's, you know, I think has a pretty uh, uh, tied up, uh, you know, uh, I think portfolio and, uh, you know, background, legal background that is that can't really be picked apart as much, it'll go quicker. Um, so, you know, I, I think it'll, it might be more than a, than a few weeks, but we're not going to, it's not going to be months. And Mitch really can't do anything to stop this. Yeah. If Mitch were in power, that's a different story. And this is why the Senate counts. But I've had multiple people text me and say, how is Mitch going to deny us this seat? I don't think there's any way the Republicans yeah, can he, do that. he can't. So Biden's going to get his pick. It's probably going to be the, the And remember, no judge. filibuster for Supreme Court yeah, judges. That's so right. that was part of what changed. So it's 50 and Kamala Harris gets yeah, it through. that's it. And if I'm Manchin in cinema, I'm not poking the bear again. You yeah. just tell me what you want, and I'm going to vote for it. Yeah, time. there's been a lot of speculation on whether or not they would vote against the nominee. I can't see that no, at this point. I don't yeah. think so. Let's end with Ukraine, everybody's favorite Eastern European country. Um, the president of Ukraine is Zelensky. Have you ever YouTube Zelensky's comedic career? Uh, I, I think I saw a video once because yeah, he was an entertainment guy yes. before he, is that the president. video? I think I might've sent this to you. That was probably the one you he's on me. like Ukraine's got talent. Yes. It's like, and yeah. he's playing the piano with his wiener. You did. You said, yeah. yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> I say that in a sarcastic meaning his, his big, his big gig was he, he puts his hand like down his pants, puts his finger through his, through his zipper and like plays piano. And it looks like he's playing piano with his, with his wiener. Yeah. I, I just tell this story again, just again, to set the players for who were actually dealing with here. We've got the comedian slash president of right. Ukraine versus the ex-KGB strongman Putin who likes wrestling bears shirtless from Russia. And remember, Zelensky was the president, too, of Ukraine when Trump <laughs> made that phone call yes. and tried to pressure him into digging up dirt uh-huh. on Biden. So, yeah, so that's that's this, uh, the landscape here. Um, so Russia threatening to invade Ukraine, send troops in. And this has been a potential uh, danger and and threat for a while. I mean, at least going back to 2014. I mean, and, and Ukrainians have lived with this and been aware that this was always a possibility based yeah. on past Russian behavior, particularly with Crimea. Um, and you, again, you only have to go back to, uh, it was 2014, I think it was 2014, when that commercial passenger jet was shot down. I remember that. By yeah. Russian um, militant activists. Was that over Belarus? I, I thought that was over Ukraine. That was over, I, it was okay, over Ukraine. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it was over, um, it was close to Crimea, but it was right there flying over. And uh, yeah, and, and you had all those people killed. And um, and again, Russia never took responsibility for it. But, you know, based on intelligence, that's what we know. So it's coming to a head now. And so the question is, you know, how far are we going to go um, yeah. if that happens? And how much of this is just strong talk by Putin versus, you know, really wanting to test the world's patience with that type of incursion. Do you think he'll really try to take Ukraine as a whole, like actually take Kiev and make Ukraine part of a Russian territory? I, I, 
it's difficult for me to see that. I think he's yeah. testing. He'll he could test the waters, you know, by you know. I think you know. I don't want to use the term minor minor incursion, but um, <laughs> we all know how that turns yeah, out. That, that's going to get you in trouble. But he's going to test the waters with specific, perhaps provocative acts at the border uh, to see how we respond and how NATO responds yeah. and the Europeans, uh, you know, and and <clears throat> then you know, I think decide next moves. And again, I. Typically, when Putin does this, he's trying to distract or divert from what's going on at home. Um, but he does, I mean, as a K- former KGB agent who was just completely distraught once the Berlin Wall fell down, he was in Berlin at the time, he has always had this fantasy about recreating a Soviet yeah. uh, sphere of influence, an empire similar to the Soviet Union, which would incur, which would include the Baltic states and Ukraine and some of these former areas of uh, influence. But yeah, it's hard for me to think he's serious because some of the preconditions he laid down to not invade included uh, returning NATO to pre like nineteen ninety eight boundaries, which yeah, would include that, that's not going to so that would include kicking Poland out of NATO, which that's is never going to happen. Never going to happen. No, I do. You, I don't. <clears throat> Putin is smart. He is never going to try a full in, full invasion of, of Ukraine. Ukraine's a company, a country of forty four million people. Yeah, it's, it's wading large. into that is a disaster. Also, too, the Ukrainians are like cousins to the Russian people. If Russian TV starts showing images of Russian soldiers killing Ukrainian soldiers or civilians, I don't think the Russian people are going to tolerate that. It's different. And I, I heard this said today, and I know this sounds crass, but it's different when you're sitting in the Soviet Union and you're seeing pictures of your army killing Taliban fighters. You feel you feel differently about the Taliban than you do about the right. Ukrainians. It's a group of people more distant and ethnicity and so tribalism. Is he going to start mowing down Ukrainian soldiers and civilians? I just I just don't see where there's any way other than like you said, stomping his foot, getting some attention, making everybody notice him. Once you get past that stage and actually have to take an action, there doesn't seem one that he can do that makes a lot of sense for his future. Well, and Ukrainians, I mean, if attacked, they're not just going to roll over either. I mean, there's, no. you know, they're an autonomous state. Uh, they have a strong uh, sense of independence as well that runs through there. And, you know, there's the possibility that you have an insurgency develop, and then <laughs> you could have the United yeah. States and other countries support that insurgency um, against the the Russians. And soon the Russians would be facing a situation not unlike what they faced in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Was it the 50s or 60s where Stalin basically, maybe in the 40s, where Stalin just basically starved Ukraine, killed like 3 million people? Where oh, they, yeah, they had I think a, that was the they had a, They had some famine in Russia, 1950s. so just like, we'll just take the Ukraine's yeah. food. We don't give a shit. Yeah, that happened in a bunch the 50s. Of yeah. I, I know that happened 60-some-odd years ago, but I'm pretty sure the Ukrainian people, if there's a full-on invasion of Russia, that the Ukrainian oh, people they haven't are going to fight that, that tooth and nail. Yeah. I saw today that Ukrainian has Ukraine has 250,000 people in their standing army and 900,000 reservists. Wow. They have like the 12th biggest tank division or number of tanks in the world. They punch above their weight militarily. They've had to because they know Russia at some point in time is gonna, is gonna do this. Well, and the problem too, like if Putin were to do that, 
that immediately puts the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia on high alert because they're at Russian's uh, doorstep as well. And, you know, throughout the years, Russia has, you know, made comments about wanting to have them, you know, back yeah. in that sphere of influence. But I, I think it changes the uh, geopolitical landscape to such a degree that I think Russia would be extremely isolated at that point, except with maybe a handful of countries like China. Yeah. And, you know, and again, you know, there's economic pain that can be felt, you know, with sanctions and the rest. Now, Russia does have some leverage as well. You know, they supply um, over half of the natural gas to Europe. That's Um, a big one for Germany. Germany has that new Nord pipeline that's under construction being developed. And so that's why Germany, unlike many of the other countries, has been a little bit more reserved and and not saying that they would be involved in a response. They've asked Russia to stand down, but they're they're not as aggressive in saying that they would take action um, like France and and the UK and other of our yeah. allies have been. And when Trump was bitching that NATO partners didn't pay their two percent, what he really who he was really bitching at was Germany. Yeah. Germany is really NATO from a military standpoint. It's about four countries led by the United States. The United States, France, Britain, Germany, they really contribute the military resources to to NATO. They do, yeah. Latvia, Estonia, I mean, th- there's no military value to have them in, in NATO. They're not chipping in a bunch of assets or or resources to a military response. But what they do is is border Russia. And they create this kind of buffer space between Western Europe and Russia. And they bring NATO right to Russia's doorstep. I don't agree with Putin's narrative, but the narrative he's trying to spin is NATO has been hyper aggressive in the last 20 years, adding these territories that traditionally have been seen as part of Russia or the Soviet Union. This is an incursion into our territory. In order to make me look stronger than what I am, I'm going to push back old Soviet style against NATO, and I'm going to choose Ukraine as the piece that I'm going to push on to see what to see what happens. But the, Russia's economy is smaller than Texas. They're, Russia is not the USSR anymore. They're not a superpower. They don't play on that stage. This is just Putin's dream and him giving one last turn around the world stage, pretending like Russia is the Soviet Union is still a power on the world stage, which they're not. Right. And there is no global appetite to have him rebuild the Soviet empire to reabsorb any of those countries, um, all of which have been autonomous now for um, well over 20 years. I mean, so it's just, it's not, um, well, 30 years, I should say, probably at this point, uh, between 20 and 30 years. So again, I, I think if he were to go that far, I mean, he's really putting himself into a hole um, economically, politically, militarily. So I think he's trying to play this to see what he can get, how far up to the line he can go, and what type of response. Um, in some cases, it may be a test run to see yeah. how we would react. Um, you know, and in some cases, you know, you probably have countries like China that are watching our response too. But you know, a la Taiwan, you know, if they were to, you know, take a similar a similar action, which is likely to happen at some point in the next several yeah. years. I mean, you got to hand it to Putin. Nobody plays a weaker hand better than him. He has no ability to invade and hold Ukraine. It's not yeah. going to happen. 
hit from a economic standpoint, from a military standpoint, they are a shadow of what the USSR. I mean, used I do think be. some of this is probably to test um, Biden. I mean, probably. you know, the four years before this, he had a president that just took his every word as yeah. gospel and stood on stage with him and said, you know, I believe him. And <laughs> but that's what if you were really going to do it, you would have done it under Trump. Yeah. Because, right, because I mean, they're. I mean, Tucker Carlson is making the pitch every night that right. this is ridiculous. Ukraine is historically part of Russia. Just hand it to him. What are we doing? Why would we even consider sending troops there? If they were going to do this, if they were serious about it, I think they would have done it under Trump because Trump was never going to send the U.S. military into Eastern Europe. You know, it's funny. Did you see that the Russian state-owned media is running Tucker Carlson clips like at daily? I mean, they're they're just taking his show and, and running it in the country as their propaganda machine. <laughs> so I thought about this. Jason texted something today, and we had a, we had a, a text exchange about Joe Rogan. Yeah. And what is the power of Joe Rogan? And I was thinking about this since, since Jason sent that. And the, the couple of things that I can come up with. Number one, Joe, Joe Rogan, and this gets back to Neil Young told oh, yeah, Spotify, hey, take my music off or take Joe Rogan off. Neil Young is an old kind of folksy 67, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yep. I'm sure anybody under the age of 100 has no idea who he is. His threat to pull Joe Rogan was ridiculous, dumb, and, and ended with him being ridiculed as it, as it should be. If you thought that way, just pull your music off and tell Spotify I'm pulling it off because I disagree. Don't make a threat to say yank the world's number one podcast off or it's my music catalog that most people don't know anyway. That, that's ridiculous. But there's two things that Rogan has going for him that gives him his power. Number one is the people that should be telling the truth about these things are not. And that's what makes Rogan relevant. Because if, if we're talking specifically about COVID, the biggest lies from COVID have not been told by Rogan. They've been told by the government. And the story has changed from them dozens of times. That opens up a space for Rogan to operate. Because Rogan can look at his audience and say, wait a minute, don't come at me for half-truths and misinformation. The biggest people that have given half-truths and mis- this whole time has been the government. And you know it. And they've told you that. Look at their response. Look how many times they've changed their answer. It's that ineffectual response is what empowers Rogan. And if the response would have been better, Rogan's power and his influence in this would have been greatly diminished. The second thing that Rogan has that people don't get, he's never grifted his audience. He's never asked his audience for a thing. He's never supported a candidate. He's never asked for money for a particular cause. Everybody that gets to the level of Joe Rogan eventually tries to monetize that audience. That makes him fairly unique. He has never done that. That, He's not a Steve Bannon in that regard. That inoculates him in a way to criticism that his audience simply will not hear. But if you don't like Joe Rogan spreading misinformation, and I went back and listened to a couple of recent Rogan episodes, and he's changed a little bit. There were some things on there that I'm like, wow, usually Rogan would have taken a bit more, let's talk about this, instead of just making announcements of this is actual fact. But if you don't want 11 million people listening to him every week, get your shit together. Get the CDC shit together. He has this ground because it's been given to him by the ineffectiveness of our institutions. And that's what we won't, that's what we won't say. If you want to make Joe Rogan irrelevant, make everybody else better. 
and that's what gives him the space to operate in. Yeah, I, I and I, I think that's right to a degree, although I think it's always going to be easier to be the person who um, resorts to conspiracy and points the finger at the government because, you know, anti-government conspiracies yep. have been around since the beginning of time, and they've always had a place where they flourished. And the difference is today, the megaphone is bigger, the potential audience is bigger because the tech platforms and the communication platforms that are available um, reach more people than what was around yeah. before. So that's part of it. Where where I think Rogan really has done a disservice to his audience, I don't believe he's ever just come out and say, hey, the stuff I'm talking about would work for me. Because one, I'm, a, I'm in better shape than any 52-year-old human on this planet. Yeah. Two, I'm a multi-gazillionaire. So I have the money and the resources to get involved in whatever treatments I want. Third, I know all kinds of world-famous doctors and, and physicians. So when you're me and you know everybody and you have all the money and you're in great health and you want to do an ivermectin uh, a vitamin drip cocktail combined with, you know, whatever, rubbing sage up your ass, that's okay for him because he is a completely different entity that what he does doesn't apply to mass public health. I think that's the real thing Rogan's done. Him going on this personal journey to try to find different treatments for COVID, that's totally fine for him. But he's never said the reason why some of this is operating the way it is is because we're trying to come up with a public health policy for 300 million people. And that's totally different than me chugging ivermectin and trying other shit to see what works or not. Right. And that's where he's completely lost his, lost his way. He can't separate himself from the other person who doesn't have his resources or his ability to, to access information. Well, and I mean, the communication issues aside from the government of which they've been just notoriously bad, again, it can't be understated that when you're operating in a pandemic with a new virus, I mean, information is going to change and evolve. And what we know is going to evolve. Yeah. The longer the virus is here, the more we learn from it. So, you know, we have to bake that in as part of the you know, process as well that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everything was a lie. It's just, we know more than we did now. I mean, and the fact of the matter is we're still learning about diseases and viruses that have been with us 30, 40, 50 years. We still learn new things. So there's this expectation, especially during a pandemic, because we're all impacted simultaneously at once by the same virus. We want all the information and we want it all now and we want to know everything. And when we can't have that or there's a change, we feel it and we react to it much more strongly than we would, you know, something like a rare form of cancer yeah. or, you know, something that can be looked at from afar. But yet we acknowledge, okay, like, you know, there's been more knowledge gained on that. But we don't react the same way when it's something that's impacting our daily yeah. lives all at once, collectively. Have you heard about this study? I think it was done in Turkey and Israel is where this story came from, about hundreds of professional soccer players dropping dead of heart conditions after taking the vaccine. So I've, I've heard every so many people reference that. Uh, yeah. Ron Johnson of Wisconsin oh, recently yeah. <laughs> talked about all these athletes dropping dead. Yeah. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, I don't So know. this was some obscure uh, story that I believe came originated in Turkey. Okay. My point is that this is a story that is highly skeptical. Yeah. And I heard Rogan repeat this on his show Ugh. as fact. The Rogan that I used to listen to would have said, okay, 
first off, this is coming from Turkey and Israel. That doesn't mean it's not accurate, but it means we should be more skeptical of it. We should look into the sources. We should see if there are other agencies that have, have validated this, this information. And a lot of people have discredited those, those studies. You know, some of these people were still alive. Some of them died of natural causes. There are explanations for that the story doesn't match what it's being displayed as. Yeah. And in traditional old school Joe Rogan podcasts, it would have been, okay, let's be skeptical of this. Then let's take what we know and apply it to this setting. Like there's three professional sports leagues happening right now right. in the United States. And there's dozens of professional soccer leagues in Latin and South America. I mean, just by simple powers of observation, you know the, th- the three major sport leagues, the NHL, the NBA, and the NFL that are all operating in North America right now, they have vaccine mandates for all their players, and 95% plus of those leagues are vaccinated. We're talking thousands of players. Wouldn't logically... Where are the people dropping dead? Wouldn't that be the most... That's what Rogan used to be. Yeah. And I think he's gotten himself sidetracked a little bit with uh, with the pandemic and what his role is in that, and I don't I don't listen to him regularly, so yeah, I was curious to see because I've I've heard about the high profile instances, like when he treated himself for COVID, but <laughs> you know I there's been still so much talk about him, so I mean it sounds like he continues to kind of go down this yeah rabbit he's, hole. he he's he's all the way down down the hole, but from his perspective, CNN did an absolute hit job on him in that ivermectin thing. That was totally not true. He wasn't yeah. taking horse warmer, but we've talked about this. The guy who invented ivermectin won the goddamn Nobel Peace Prize in medicine. Ivermectin has been prescribed over a billion times worldwide. Well, well, well true. He but wasn't sucking on a tube of horse creamer. Yeah. That's ridiculous. But but again, it, and the same thing too, like the, the um, those that are anti-vax that are firm believers in ivermectin, like, yes, it won a Nobel Prize for medicine, and it's been around a long time, and it has a very specific use case. It does. It treats parasites. Yep. There's some skin disorders it treats. That isn't to say that it couldn't be helpful for COVID, but to make that leap and to somehow go beyond the bounds of scientific, the rigors of scientific research and trials and peer-reviewed studies and say, no, like this works, like that's, a, 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 again, a bridge too far. And the stuff that they cite for it is, yes, it's a drug. We have thousands of different drugs that are available on the market today, and they all serve different purposes and different use cases. That doesn't mean you can just pluck a cancer drug and use it yeah. and say, oh, this will treat my COVID. Like it's All of that <laughs> is logical, makes sense, should be explained, and should be accepted. At the same time that in the same week almost, you had CNN saying Rogan is sucking down a tube of horse dewormer to treat his COVID. At the same, I think very closely the same time, remember the story they ran in Oklahoma about the emergency room that gunshot victims couldn't get into because they had so many people overdosing on ivermectin? Oh, yeah. And that story was totally false. They completely made that up. That one was completely falsified? It's completely false. You have those two things that happen. Now you can see. Why Why is Rogan the crazy one? Right. And, and it causes people to think, well, I can't believe anything that so I hear. So the yeah. government didn't tell me the exact truth. CNN just blatantly lied. And then I have this guy over here who's saying, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I believe. 
if you're a 22 year old kid, where are you going to turn into? Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the issue. At some point too, we're going to have to talk about that men in this country are just in absolute free fall. And yeah. we're going to have to talk at some point. I saw a great tweet thread from Andrew Yang, who is like, is anybody going to start talking about that in college right now, men make up about 40% of the college students in America. Participation by men in higher education is dropping like a rock. In 2012, 70% of high school valedictorians were women. Wow. There's certain parts of the country, Yang talked about, that education is seen as feminine now. The number, the, the rate of suicide, 50 up plus for men, is exploding. Yeah. At some point, we're going to have to talk Especially to, for young men, yeah. Now, this, men are going to be a problem in this country. And as history tells us, what you don't want is a bunch of young men disconnected from society with not a lot to do. That usually leads to bad, no. bad stuff. Uh, and China is a prime <laughs> example of that. Brandon, you look like you're not 100% over your whatever sickness is you had. You still got some cough. For the and... most part, I just have this like little like dry cough like for my yeah. throat where I just every once in a while. But um, through outside of that, I multiple COVID tests. You never tested positive for COVID. I did not. No, I had the same thing. And, right? I, and I never had a fever. I had a sore throat that lasted like eight to twelve hours. Yeah. Um, that was pretty bad, and then that went away. And then it was just um, head and nose congestion. Yeah, I, you know, sneezing and. Um, runny nose, that's all gone, and I just have this lingering dry cough, essentially. Let's end with, do you think the Chiefs are going to make the Super Bowl? I think, I, I think so. I'm pretty confident. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, uh... I like Natty, but I don't think Natty's got much of a chance. Yeah. And that game last oh, week. Oh, that is like the game of all games. That's going to go down in history. I mean, that was just unbelievable to watch. So I think I've told you we have a specific routine in our house with my wife because she's so superstitious. So I get to watch like the first drive upstairs. Then I have to go downstairs. <laughs> I can watch the TV oh, as long as they're winning. As soon as something bad happens, I have to turn the TV off. And then if they still don't win, I have to leave the house physically. <laughs> and this all stems from the year we won the Super Bowl. We were down 24 nothing to the Texans in like six minutes into that game. She threw me out of the house and we won. So now we've established the pattern brand. You have to do that over and over again. If things go bad, I have to go to Target. That's That's funny. That's what did it. I have to go to Target. (laughs) Although when we were losing the Super Bowl to the Bucks, I went to Target the second half and that didn't work. But Uh, I don't know if the magic's broken yet. Yeah, hopefully not. I mean, that's, uh, gosh, that was one uh, hell of a game. That was unbelievable. I guess the people there had to be just physically exhausted by the time that game got over. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a roller coaster. I mean, up and down and very end. And then I would just kind of resign myself to the fact that they weren't going to be able to come back with those last 13 seconds. And then it happens. And, oh. It's just for all the people, all the preparation and the pressure that goes on those guys, but the fact that they were able to execute so well yeah. with 13 seconds is just I know I couldn't do it. I mean, I think of like that too much pressure. I just like, you know. Last question. What do you think of Patrick Mahomes' girlfriend or fiance, Brittany, and his <laughs> brother, uh, what's his brother's name on TikTok? Oh, yeah. The real tall kid. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's always talking. Jackson and, Mahomes. Yes, Jackson Mahomes. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it, yeah, he's been criticized for different things in the past. I think yeah. he he went into a restaurant, kind of demanded to be seated. Yeah, he's Patrick Mahomes' brother, so he tends to do things. I, I'm not like I heard about the criticism of um, Brittany, Brit- Brittany, but I'm not sure. Out of it's... a box, she opened up the glass door out of the, her skybox. She was oh, in. and the champagne. And she had, yeah, I mean, okay. 
that seemed pretty cool. I wouldn't mind that if Britney sprayed me with champagne after winning that game. Yeah. That's the context I think most of those people lack. Okay. It was that game. Hmm. Yeah, I saw. I mean, there was a whole article. Star had a whole article yeah. about it, like a write-up. It's just like... Let it go. Yeah. Right, that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.